Hello and welcome to this episode of Before Economics, the history of political economy. We are the 99% is the catch cry of the Occupy Wall Street movement. The essential claim is that the wealth of the richest 1% in American society has reached an obscene level and that the influence of the wealthy has led the government to neglect its core duty, to tend to the welfare of the mass of the population, the 99%. The relationship between political legitimacy and what we think of as economic phenomena is also at the heart of today's text, John Locke's Second Treatise on Government. It is usually considered to be a work of political theory, setting out the rights of citizens and the limits of governmental power. In this sense, it is a strange inclusion in a podcast series concerned with the history of political economy, but it deserves a place for at least two reasons. First, examining Locke's text will allow us to see how property rights and what we think of as economic development were not viewed in a technical manner, as they tend to be viewed by economics today. They were rather seen in decidedly moral terms, in opposition to the counselling and reason of state perspectives that we have so far reviewed. Second, the genre in which Locke worked was known as natural law, an enormously influential discourse throughout Western Europe until the 19th century. And the story of political economy is essentially one of outcompeting natural law and reason of state as the framework in which to understand economic phenomena. It won't hurt to have a quick look at the competition. But before we get to natural law, let us start with Locke. He studied at Oxford and seems to have been naturally suited to the life of an academic. He was diverted from this path by his encounter with Anthony Ashley Cooper, the first Earl of Shaftesbury, the man who would become Locke's patron and inject him into politics and statecraft. The meeting owed to the Earl's diseased liver. Locke helped with an operation that seems to have worked, despite the horrifying state of medicine at the time. Shaftesbury detected that Locke's talent extended well beyond medicine and made him secretary to his board of trade and a trusted source of political counsel. In this second capacity, Locke wrote numerous texts for Shaftesbury on all manner of topics, including education, money and religious toleration. We now approach the circumstances in which Locke wrote his second treatise of government. A dynamic political operator, Shaftesbury was attempting nothing less than constitutional change to force the king... Charles II, to exclude his Catholic brother James from the succession. Today, Catholics and Protestants live together well enough, but in the 17th century, confessional identity was a matter of life and death. What Shaftesbury needed, and what Locke provided, was an argument that justified resistance and rebellion in the strongest possible terms. Locke turned to natural law. But in the 17th century, what did it mean to speak of laws that were natural? Professor Richard Devitak. Natural law was natural in the sense that it was thought to be inherent to human nature. This is an idea that humans inherently have a kind of moral impulse. Secondly, it's natural in the sense that it was thought that natural law was a set of moral, legal, political principles that could be knowable through natural reason. Thirdly, that natural law is something which is thought to be universally valid. So it's natural to the extent that it's everywhere. So when you put those three ideas together, that it's inherent to human nature, that it's knowable through natural reason, and that it's universal in its validity, that's to say it doesn't matter what the time or the place is, these are trans-historical or universal laws, and in that sense as well, supposed to be as natural perhaps as gravity, as a force of nature. What were the natural laws? The first was to preserve humankind in common, for we were all made by God, and all obligated to him. 
This natural law guaranteed that humans could live peacefully and sociably together, even without a settled government and rule of law. In fact, this was the second natural law, to be sociable and live together. Locke argued that this purpose was revealed by the fact that we enjoy living with other humans, that we have reason, and that we have speech for communicating our thoughts. So far, so good. But life in this natural state soon became complicated. There was, above all, the issue of property. God had provided food for humans to live on the face of the earth, and it could be appropriated with labour, as when I pick a mango from the tree or plant wheat in a field. But what if I pick more mangoes than my family needs? Locke insisted that by doing so, I had needlessly reduced the commons available for all humankind, thereby violating the first natural law, to preserve humanity in common. The community therefore held the right to punish me, and held it as a natural right. This would all present some severe limits to what we think of as economic development, as humans remained tethered to a form of agrarian communism. And here we come to one of Locke's great moves. Locke treated the invention of money as extinguishing the limits to wealth. Unlike my mangoes, money in the form of gold and silver would never perish, and my family was therefore free to accumulate as much of it as possible without violating any natural laws. In this way, humans used their reason to divine the natural laws and live sociably outside of a settled political community, with commerce coming to be affected through money. Complications would arise, however, as more property was claimed and the human race expanded. Humans would begin to bump into each other's borders and boundaries, and when they did, they would only have their own interpretations of the natural law to adjudicate disputes. The solution was political society, to surrender the right to judge transgressions against the natural law and to give this power over to a civil authority that would make standing laws and judge their application consistently. The problems caused by money and property, in other words, were the origin of political society. This is a story of human development, not told with the concepts of capital accumulation, specialisation or comparative advantage, but with the concepts of natural law. What of Locke the apologist for revolution? Humans could not alienate their right to live and be governed as rational creatures because that was given to them by God, who made humans to live rationally. It followed that if a corrupt government failed to respect this essential human nature, then the basis of the society was dissolved. If we remember the intensely religious nature of politics at the time, then it becomes possible to see how the prospect of a Catholic king could arouse rebellion. Professor Richard Devitak again. John Locke's most famous for writing the two treatises on government. And in that text, one of the things that he argues is that the state poses a threat to individual liberty. And in order for individuals to protect their liberty, governments need to be restrained through constitutional mechanisms. But when governments overreach and abuse their constitutional powers, uh, that's to say when they become tyrannical, then Locke believes that individuals have a right to resist the authorised government. They have a right to rebellion. And in fact, the two treatises is usually seen as a revolutionary tract, an argument in support of revolution or rebellion against the settled government of the day, which he thought, like others, was a crypto-Catholic one. Money, labour and property. They were tightly tied together in Locke's natural law. Economic phenomena in this case were not related to state strength, but to the rights held by individuals in virtue of the fact that they were the creations of a benevolent god. As we will see when we come to the 18th and 19th centuries, it would take a long time for natural law to release its grip on political economy. 
This episode of Before Economics was brought to you by the European Society for the History of Economic Thought. Written and spoken by me, Dr. Ryan Walter, at the University of Queensland. Special thanks to Richard Devitak. The audio engineer was Ni Adepoyubi.